0: today's reading comes from hebrews 1 1 to 4 long ago and at many times and in many ways god spoke to our fathers by the prophets but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world he is the radiance of the glory of god and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You may be seated. And as you're being seated, we'll pray. God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Lord, we can't even barely imagine what that is. And Lord, we thank you that you are that. We thank you that you are holy, that you are majesty, that you are enthroned, and yet you are still with us. So we, in this, we pray. In your name I pray, amen. So last week, uh, we started our Advent series, and, and, and it's called The Turning Point of History. And Jake laid the groundwork for us a bit, and he talked about the scriptural Old Testament promise of a king, a savior in the line of David who would rule the people of Israel, who would rule with equity, with justice, and he would reign forever. Now we're left you know, with the reality that this promise was fulfilled in the manger, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. This Old Testament promise of a king in the line of David, we saw that his rule would be like no other. He was, it was marked by poverty. He was born in a manger. The God of the universe sends his son in a barn full of animals. See, this liberator, this, 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 this king born into suffering, acquainted with grief, we saw that this king, this savior of the world, is the only one worthy to submit to. The only one we can trust. The only one we can actually surrender to because he wields power in a completely different way. He is the king worthy to be praised because he sacrifices himself He sacrifices himself for his subjects. So in a nutshell, Jake addressed the promised king. And he left with with confronting the issue is, is he worthy to surrender and submit to? Can I trust Jesus as king? Do I dare? This week we're going to take a look at this diamond of Advent and we're going to shift a little bit and look at a glint from another angle and we're going to look at the advent of the prophet. The coming prophet. And we're going to address this tricky issue of the voice of truth in this world. Now, I'm just going to state it up front. Some of uh, some of you, you're sitting there, you might be like me. And once the twinkle lights go up, and the Christmas tree, you know, is adorned, and the ceaselessly never-ending Christmas music, you begin to morph, and you transform into something that resembles a little bit like a Grinch. Now, if that's you, you may be sitting there, and you're kind of cynical, and you're thinking... Who cares? Like, what does Jesus as prophet have to do with Christmas? Like, really, is this just like a normal sermon with like a veneer of, of Christmas on it? How, how, how does Jesus as prophet help me find a parking spot when there's seven, you know, 743 other people looking at that spot that you've already put your little twinkle light to go into? How does, how does Jesus as prophet help me pay next month the credit card bills that I racked up to buy my kids everything that they wanted? Now, if that's you... I'm just assuming one or two of you might be like me. I'm going to just bear with me. I'm going to mix it up a bit. Uh, I don't have any clever story right out of the gate. I'm just going to give you my outline straight up front so you can all track with where I'm going. We're going to look at four things this morning. We're going to search for a prophetic voice, we're going to ponder the question is anybody out there? Next, we will re- look at, at the revealed voice of God. Point three will be the problematic voice of interpretation. And lastly, we will end on the supremacy of the voice of the sun. So, story time now. When I was a kid, I grew up considerably more north than here. And, I don't know, I liked Christmas at one point in my life, and and probably because at some point, usually around Christmas, when it was cold enough, when everything in the sky was all right, that there was a possibility of northern lights. Now I, have, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced northern lights before, but they are absolutely staggering. So I remember one Christmas, I was about 14 or 15 years old, and I don't know it was like super cold or whether there was just some other particles in the atmosphere, but the northern lights were more spectacular than they usually were. We looked up at the night sky and we saw magical blues, greens, yellows. So it was like minus 30, and. Uh, you know, this is, and we put on our you know redneck formals, you know insulated coveralls, you know with seven hundred layers on the toque, the mitts, the gloves, and you and you sauntered outside, and, and you know, and because we couldn't go south, what we did was we build like these patio deck chairs out of snow. We'd pack them down, and we would lie there, and we would stare at the stars, drinking our hot chocolate, you know, with our little umbrella in it. And we stared at the stars until we were almost frozen. Now, what we saw was intoxicating. It was a a dance in the sky purely for our wonder and our enjoyment. Now, as as a kid, I distinctly remember feeling like a voice from heaven was talking directly to me. Something from beyond trying to communicate with me. It made me feel special. It connected with my heart. Now, of course, we can, you know, explain the aurora borealis with physics, magnetic fields, colliding space particles. But even so, with this knowledge, and to this day, the northern lights grip me like nothing else. They speak to me in a way that's profound. I can't even explain it. Have you ever wondered? Have you pondered? Is anything else out there? Is any intelligent life out there? If you have, you're not alone. Stephen Hawking once said, people have always wanted answers to the big questions. Where do we come from? How did the universe begin? What is the meaning and design behind it all? Is there anyone out there? The creation accounts of the past now seem less relevant and credible. They have been replaced by a variety of what can only be called superstitions, ranging from New Age to Star Trek. Our whole culture is obsessed with this idea from our art, from our music, from our science fiction shows we binge watch on Netflix or, you know, now Disney Plus. You know, look, we've even got billionaires that send their roadsters into space. Like, how ridiculous is that? There is a rational, is there a rational, intelligent other? Is there a, is there that voice out there? Now, this question has plagued mankind from the beginning of time. As we speak, billions of dollars are spent looking, looking, searching, exploring for the beyond. Now, we've got ground-based telescopes, we've got space-based telescopes, we've got massive antenna array possibly hearing radio waves from the beyond. You know, we're striving to find if something else is in this universe, is something communicating with us. Now, there's even a, I don't know if you know this, you know, There's even an organization called SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. And they're based in California. And believe it or not, there's over 130 scientists that actually are pondering this question, the voice from beyond. And this search is deep. And it isn't just, you know, a new Disney Plus show with a little baby Yoda. And it isn't a new Star Trek with Chris Pine. Once again, Stephen Hawking, he says this, we are just an advanced breed of monkeys on a minor planet of a very average star. But we can understand the universe. And that makes us something special. The greatest theoretical physicist that our world has ever seen in a lifelong search to understand the universe, he recognized that in the chaos of the cosmos, we're special. And with that, on the coattails, the unspoken thing that, that I wonder if we're alone. To explain this in theological categories, humanity is in a search for the prophetic voice from beyond. We are longing to hear a voice of rational truth to speak into the chaos and to explain why we exist. From creation, human beings have wanted a universe that has talked to them. As I stated earlier, this is expressed in our literature, our science fiction, we have a desire to see talking trees. We have a desire to have little animals speak to us. We want to be known. But our greatest fear under all of this is what if there is no rational other? What if? The good news of Advent. The reason why this Jesus as prophet sermon. The reason why this is so important is because this, this desire within us, it exists because there is. There is. This collective longing we instinctively know that we are not alone. See, In looking to the stars, humanity has missed the forest for the, you know, in search of talking trees. This intelligent other, this rational truth that we're searching for, the Bible calls God. And he has spoken. He has spoken. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 says, Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The creator of the universe, the creator of this, you know, advanced breed of monkeys on an insignificant planet orbiting an average star, Hawking says we're special because, because the creator himself spoke into our lives and into our creation by the prophets. In our voracious search for truth, we have missed the fact that truth has been spoken into the entirety of human history, and it has done so by the voice of God. This brings us to our second point, the revealed voice of God. Now, the part of the problem with this whole concept of, you know, prophet in our minds, we kind of, we don't connect it with truth. What we do is we think of some, you know, bearded old guy like Gandalf or, or some old hag witch with like bad teeth living in a cave, like something out of, you know, Macbeth. And, and we think that this person, their sole duty is to tell the future, you know, like a seer or a soothsayer, you know, for an extra bit of change, we can actually divine what possibly, you know, nudge them in your favor, but we can actually maybe tell something of the truth that can affect our world. To be clear, that is not what the Bible talks about or teaches us when we actually look at what a prophet is. So for fun, you could do a quick search on how many times in the Bible this phrase occurs, thus saith the Lord, or, you know, it's old school, but thus says the Lord. 1,900 times, more than 1,900 times that phrase is used in the Bible. That's pretty, pretty scary. 1,900 documented times that we have in history that God has actually spoken to us as humans. Now, I'm sure that that's just the tip of the iceberg of what we know. Regardless, a phrase used this many times, probably we should pay attention to it when it's used. It's not just a fun fact to use on Jeopardy. So what then does a prophet mean? Probably one of the clearest snapshots of what a prophet is, is if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Exodus chapter 4. So to set the stage here, we've got the entire people of Israel, enslaved for 400 years in Egypt. And Moses, after he's committed murder, he's hiding in the wilderness. And a strange and odd story. God himself appears to Moses but it doesn't appear face-to-face like, like, like what you would think. But it appears in the fact of a burning bush. And God speaks directly to Moses. He tells Moses, look, my people need to be liberated and I need you to go speak to the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, on my behalf to let my people go. You know the phrase, right? And what does Moses say? Uh, I don't think I can do that. I'll send somebody else instead. Look, we're sending vehicles into space to find a significant outer voice. And and Moses is confronted by the God of the universe and he says, yeah, no thanks. Can you imagine how ridiculous this is? So we pick up the story in verse 14. Exodus chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses and he said, is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth. And with his mouth will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people. And he shall be your mouth. And you shall be as God to him. He shall be your mouth. And you shall be a God to him. Aaron was to be the prophetic voice of Moses. Aaron was the mouthpiece, saying exactly what Moses was supposed to say. This is the role of the prophet. This is the pattern of the prophets all the way since the beginning. The prophets were the direct mouthpiece of God. Not visions of the future, nor kind of some petty condemnation, but but the very mouthpiece of God himself. So when Elijah, when Jeremiah, and even when Jonah speaks and says, thus says the Lord we are to understand that they're uttering the very words of God himself. This is what we're to understand when we read Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We need to understand the prophet was the mouthpiece, the conduit of revealed truth. Since the beginning of time, humanity has related to God based on this prophetic voice a voice that brings truth from beyond. So if that's true then, why did people listen to the prophets? Why, why has there been, you know, why did they kill the prophets? Why? Why do we still search amongst the stars today? And that brings us to our next point, the problematic voice of interpretation. See, we don't listen. We actually don't, be, because we don't believe that what the prophets say are actually is coming from God. That's one reason. And we don't believe that this message is for our benefit. And we certainly don't trust this prophetic truth because of this nasty little thing called interpretation. We have competing versions of truth. People don't believe what the Bible says about God because we think we can interpret what God says for ourselves. Central to humanity is this tenet that says we believe everyone has the right to their own interpretation of what truth is. Don't we? The good news or the bad news, both, that this issue existed since the beginning of time, since before prophets even existed. Since there was, in fact, before there was even death, this problem of interpretation exists. Turn with me to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. It's an interesting little story as well. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. So they're in the garden, and this little snaky guy comes up, and he's talking to Eve, and he says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say? Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now if you're familiar with this story, you know what God actually said. And he said directly to them. See, they had a face-to-face relationship with God himself. (laughs) You notice... They could eat of any tree. That's what God said, except for one. See, the serpent, he twists the truth of God, you know, puts the interpreter's twist on it, and, you know, casts doubt on what God actually says was actually beneficial to Adam and Eve. See, the serpent opens the door to personal interpretation, and we as humanity dove headlong into it. As the story goes, they eat eat the fruit, and as a punishment, they're evicted from the very presence of God. From that point on, Humanity has now been forced to hear from God through prophets, through a mouthpiece rather than a face-to-face relationship. The course of human history, everything went south, everything went off the rail because of bad personal interpretation. Ponder that this afternoon. As much as we want to hear from the beyond, as much as we have this deep longing inside of us, we actually have a greater desire to do what's best for ourselves. From this point on, our unadulterated search of truth has been marred and twisted by interpretation. So we're at the cusp of 2020 in Vancouver, and we're forced also to deal with this dilemma. In our society, generally speaking, broad brushstrokes, we actually have kind of two competing versions of truth here. The first one could be called maybe naturalism or secularism. Now, this is a worldview that's dictated by rational empirical data you know, the interpretation of science. All we have is what we can see, and all we see is what we can know, and all we know is what we can measure. There is no ultimate reality. There is no God, and nothing is God. This view is held commonly by the German philosopher Nietzsche, and he said this, he said, God is dead, God remains dead, and we have killed him. That's a sobering thought. Nietzsche held that there was no room, no place whatsoever for Christian belief of truth in the modern world. This idea probably is better expressed by Stephen Hawking. He says this. He says, God may exist, but science can explain the universe without the need of a creator. The scientific account is complete, period. Theology is unnecessary. Stephen Hawking articulates This the thoughts of Nietzsche, and he looks into the data and he interprets. He interprets that God is irrelevant. That voice permeates our culture, and many find it compelling. The second interpretive kind of grid work, a voice of truth, is that of progressive pluralism or straight up pantheism. Now, in this view, God is in everything, and that everything is God. All you have to do is look inward. All you have to do is to find your inner creativity. All you have to do is find your inner potential and your inner greatness. Now, if there's one person that is a prophetic voice of this, and that is the queen herself, Oprah. And she says this. It all boils down to one thing. It is your relationship to the source. And that relationship to which we call God or don't call God or don't even know is God, you know, when you claim that and see that, The literal vibration of your life will change and the vibration of your life will change. I'm like, I'm not sure what the heck that means. It isn't until you come to a spiritual understanding of who you are, not necessarily a religious quote-unquote feeling, but deep down, the spirit within, and then you can begin to take control. This is what we call Vancouver spirituality. And it is expressed in absolutely everything that we do from our card readings, looking at our horoscopes, maybe even possibly to the practice of mindfulness. Ironically, both of these interpretations of truth have one thing in common. They're linked together under one thing, and that is the belief that you and I, the individual, derive truth and meaning from inside ourselves. Yes, even Stephen Hawking. Remember to look up at the stars and not down at your feet. Try to make sense of of what you see and wonder what it makes the universe exist. Be curious. And however difficult life may seem, there is always something you can do and succeed at. It matters that you just don't give up. Well, that's enticing. We are all interpreters of truth. And the problem is, it's really bluntly put, is our autonomy. We develop an intellectual construct to do all the things that our inner self wants to do. Let me put it another way. We develop an internal framework, a worldview, a version of truth to do all the things that our inner self desires to do and to believe. And that, people, is the problem of interpretation. Dealing with this issue, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he wrote a letter to a church in Rome and he said this in chapter 1, verses 18 to 22. This should be sobering for us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness, or you could you know, slide in, interpretive grid, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature has clearly been perceived ever since the creation of the world. And the things that have been made, they are, so that they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools. This is why we're stuck, people. God has spoken. And in our interpretive grid, we actively suppress the truth. We ignore Him. It's almost like we need a prophetic voice that's better to actually cut through all of this mess, this internal, you know, to cut through this internal construct that we have set up for ourselves. We almost need something to just get rid of this rubric that we have. And that leads us to our final point the supremacy of the voice of the Son. Now, in Matthew chapter 17, we have kind of this really interesting story. So, you have Jesus, and he takes Peter, James, and John, and they decide to go for a hike up a mountain. And the text says that at the top of the mountain, Jesus is transformed, transfigured even says, and his, he's changed. He, his face shines like the sun, and his clothes become white as light. Now, as if that isn't weird enough, he's met with Moses and Elijah, like two dead guys. So you've got glowing Jesus and two dead guys. So don't miss the significance here. Jesus is glowing, and with him are the sources of the interpretive voice of God. Moses, the lawgiver, and Elijah, the prophet of prophets. Now, Peter, he recognizes that something significant is going on here, and he says, "Uh, Jesus, can we make a couple of tents for you? And we think, what? This catches us off guard, and we think, really, camping? Is he thinking about camping? I don't get it. We don't get the symbolism, you see. For us, this is way out of left field. But I, think, I don't think Peter is being particularly obtuse here. I think Peter understands that the very presence of God is there with them on the mountain. And, and this petition of building tents is, is a reference to proper worship. Back to the days before the temple. Back to the days when they erected a tent, a tabernacle, and the glory of God came down and dwelt in it. See, he was thinking about the glory of God, and he was drawn to worship. Peter was overcome. Now, this petition of building a tent, you know, is is a weight of him to honor who was there. But like we don't get to know, and uh, as Peter is talking, a cloud. So, you've got glowing Jesus, who's whiter than the sun, and you've got a cloud that comes down and actually envelops him and shines brighter than that. So in Matthew chapter 17, verses 5 to 7, we get this. He, Peter, was still speaking then. And behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them and said, Rise, have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes... They saw no one but Jesus only. This voice from beyond declares Jesus his son and that they were to listen to him. Now the symbolism is huge here. Don't don't miss this. We are to understand as the readers that Jesus is superior to both the law and the prophets. Jesus is superior to both Moses and Elijah because he is the son of God. And when he speaks, it's as if God himself is speaking. Now we can finally understand the words of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Let's hear afresh these words. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Wow, this just blows my mind. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is much more excellent than theirs. What Peter, James, and John saw and experienced on the mountain, we have articulated for us right here by the author of Hebrews. In previous times, God has spoken. As Romans says, this truth has been proclaimed for everyone to see. What's so amazing about Advent and about Christmas is, is that knowing God, we still suppress the truth. But God ups his game. God ups his game. And from this first Christmas onwards, God now speaks to us through his son. God speaks to us through his son. And let me tell you, people, that is intimate. We can see the radiance of the glory of God because Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Not only do we hear the voice of God, but when we see Jesus, we to understand that, that That at some point, we are like Adam. We can now see the face of God himself. There is objective truth. The prophets, as a mouthpiece of God, brought it. But Jesus embodies it. He fulfills it. Jesus is not only the subject of prophecy, but he is the object of prophecy. Not only does he bring truth, he is truth. Jesus is superior because he doesn't reveal a fractured truth or a partial truth or bits and pieces of truth sprinkled around like salt and pepper. He is the truth of God himself because he shows us who God is in himself. And therefore, Jesus is the final and better prophet. Now, that might be hard for us, for some of us to hear, but let me, let me, let me, let me, I'm just going to tell you something. Because of this, we don't need Oprah. This is why Christians are all on about Jesus. This is why we celebrate Christmas. This is the truth, even for grumpy Grinch guys like me. Let's be honest. Christmas is amazing because Jesus is the revealed truth of God. Now, let's be honest with ourselves here. The truth, this truth that Jesus brings, as beautiful and as life-changing as it is, it's hard, isn't it? We see Jesus and his absolute claims on our lives And we find it slightly abrasive and we've been looking at the sermon on the mount for the past three months and let's be honest we've actually we've had to come to terms with this reality that we don't measure up we can't handle his truth and we look for ways to interpret it in our lives we soften the truth we try to water down jesus and in our minds, we kind of negotiate a working settlement to, you know, that's best for us. See, we can, we can interpret the hard, absolute truths about Jesus, but we can do so in a way that keeps our own personal integrity and our autonomy intact. It comes down to one thing, really, fear. We are afraid of the truth of Jesus because we're afraid to look into the face of God. We're afraid of what we might see. You know, We don't want to look because if we maybe look, we might see shame. We might see sin. We might see guilt. We know we're unworthy. We know we're broken. And we think it's safer to just stuff it down and suppress that. You know, that might be true if Jesus was only the prophet. Might be, but I doubt it. What makes this true, what makes this amazing, is the fact that Jesus is more than a prophet. Turn with me to Matthew 17, 6 again. See, when the disciples heard this, you know, the voice from heaven, they fell on their faces and they were terrified. You see, the disciples, they were in the same position that you and I were in. They were fearful. They were terrified. They were forced to deal with this absolute truth about Jesus. This is what makes Advent the turning point of history. It's because Jesus is not only the prophet, but he's also priest, and he is also king. Jesus is the priest because, because Jesus, the glory of God, as Hebrews says, makes purification for sins. In other words, what that means is the exact imprint of God dies. Dies for our suppressed truth. He dies, he, for Romans says, that we, because we're foolish we're, we're claiming to be wise, but really we're in the dark and futile in our thinking. Jesus goes to the cross. He dies the death. He suffers for you and I, for our suppression of truth, to bring us to the place where we can be on the mountain and see God face to face. We can see Jesus, just like Peter, James, and John did. But Jesus is also king. He's also king. He's sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and he displays his ultimate, ultimate, ultimate power in his weakness. First as a baby at Advent, what we celebrate. And then ultimately in his death, burial, and resurrection on the cross. He is the king worthy to submit to. He is the king worthy to look into the face to. We can surrender ourselves because he is king. But you notice, maybe, you know, there's, not everything is right. He is worthy because he is the king that will come as well. He is a king that will come with all power and restore everything that has been broken. And we look forward to that day. Because he is prophet, because he is priest, because he is king, this means that we can, we can look at the truth of Jesus and not be obliterated by his power. Because we're loved. Because we're accepted. That's more than just raw truth. Turn with me back to Matthew 17, 6 and 7. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them saying, rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. The advent, the turning point of history is that the ultimate voice from beyond touches us in our fear and in our shame and in our guilt, and he says, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we can look up, and we can actually see the face of God. Now, some of you here this morning might be having a hard time with this. You know, either somebody's dragged you here, or, you know, maybe you just have a worldview that equates Jesus with Santa Claus. as some sort of myth that you just kind of celebrate just because. Um, Maybe you're just far down, you know, you have a hard time believing in a spiritual reality when you can't see it. I leave, you, I leave you with one question. What if you need something outside of your interpretive grid to actually solve this thing inside of you? What if you, what you're really searching for, you don't contain yourself? Now, others of you this morning, you know, you, you might want to believe you get it, but you passively suppress the truth. And you, and you go about your lives cautiously picking elements of competing narratives of truth. And in reality, we build our own survival tent on the top of the mountain. Secure from all the elements. But we're sitting there in shame and guilt. And really, we're in the dark. We're trying to hold it all together, you know, with, with duct tape and spit. And, and, and we're just thinking, man, if I could just hold it together. But I plead with you this morning... This habit, dare to unzip the tent. Dare to unzip the tent and look into the face of Jesus. You see, he is worthy to be praised because his name is Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Please stand as we respond. Thanks for listening. For more information about Christ City Church in Vancouver,